Welcome to Invested in Climate. Protecting the planet and decarbonizing the global economy is the challenge of our time. Never before have so many people rallied around a common cause. We all have a role to play, and the opportunity we face is unprecedented. Invested in Climate aims to help people do more to address climate change through their work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. I'm your host, Jason Rissman. I co-lead a climate venturing practice at the design firm IDEO, supporting early-stage climate founders and organizations. I'm also an investor and startup advisor, and have realized that when it comes to climate action, I'll be a lifelong learner looking for the best ways to have a climate-positive impact. If you like what you hear, give us a good rating on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you found us. Follow us on social, subscribe, and spread the word. Find episodes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. Thanks for joining. The IPCC report that came out recently found that demand side changes, including consumer behavior change, can help reduce 40 to 70% of the emissions that we need to cut by 2050. So we do have power, especially when we act together and when we know which choices to focus on. I'll be honest here. I don't think carbon offsets are the answer. Companies relying only on offsets to become carbon neutral are pushing off the hard work of reducing their emissions. An individual level, however, buying offsets actually has a different effect. It gets individuals to become more engaged in managing their carbon footprint, in talking about climate, and getting involved in activism. This is some of what I learned from Sanchali Paul, founder of a venture-backed startup called Joro. I suspect you'll learn a lot from our conversation. Enjoy. Hello, Sanchali. Welcome to Invested in Climate. Thanks, Jason. Thanks for having me. So great to have you join us today. I got to hear a bit about your work during our virtual event, New Opportunities for Climate Action. The recording, by the way, is on the Invested in Climate website. And I'm really excited to get to spend more time with you today and learn more about the work that you're doing. Before we dive in, I should ask, how was the event for you? And did you learn anything from any of the other panelists? I loved the event. I think it was one of the most engaged virtual events I've done in a while. There's often Zoom fatigue, but we had an awesome turnout and people were really engaged that I was impressed by the questions everyone asked. Um, And I got to learn so much about other folks' work. I think I left feeling inspired because because other people care and are doing amazing things and, and there's so many awesome solutions being worked on. Great. Yeah, I was blown away by the number of questions. They just kept coming and it definitely made for a vibrant conversation. And thanks again for joining that and, and for joining us here today. So let's dive in. You are the founder of a company called Joro. What is it and what's the problem that you're aiming to solve? Joro helps people manage their carbon as easily as they manage their finances. And the problem is really that many of us care about doing something about climate change. Many of us are even alarmed and are actively looking for, is there anything I can do that will make a difference? But it's so hard to make sense of what actually matters and to understand what you can do without drastically changing your quality of life. So Joro meets people where they are. 
you it's a mobile app you can download it you connect your credit and debit cards you can automatically track the carbon of every purchase you make that's free it always will be uh, we want to democratize access to carbon data so people have access to it for their decision making and then you can find ways to reduce it you can find ways to change your behavior to lower the emissions from your lifestyle or you can discover meaningful offsets that we curate and evaluate for you and it really does matter i mean the IPCC report that came out recently found that demand side changes, including consumer behavior change, can help reduce 40 to 70 percent of the emissions that we need to cut by 2050. So we do have power, especially when we act together and when we know which choices to focus on. Fantastic. Let's dive into it a bit deeper. Tracking individual carbon footprints is a notoriously hard problem. How are you doing it? So how are you able to actually calculate what a person's footprint is? It is a really hard problem because ultimately when we're tracking carbon footprints, we're tracking energy use. Energy is embedded in everything we buy. It's embedded in the energy we buy for our homes, in our gasoline, even in our clothing or in our food. So Joro actually taps into your spending, which is the best data proxy we have for consumption or for carbon emissions, and gives you a real-time carbon feed based on how you spend money. It's the same sort of the spend-based emissions accounting method is the same underlying approach that companies use when they're tracking their own emissions and that countries use when they calculate the emissions of a country. We're just adapting those methodologies to be visible to the consumer. Very cool. And I imagine a lot of data science, probably some machine learning in the background, pulling in different data sets, as well as being able to track based upon individuals' consumption. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's probably easiest illustrated through an example. So if you spend 50 bucks at the gas pump, we look at the carbon intensity per dollar of gasoline, and those are national level data sets that we look at. But then we also adjust it for where you purchased it. So I'm in Oakland, California. If I purchased gasoline here, the price of gasoline right now is almost $6 a gallon. And so we'll account for that in the calculation. So we combine national, local, and then even transaction level data sets um, and information about the user. So if you tell us you're vegetarian, your grocery bill will have a lower bill, a lower carbon footprint than someone who's not. And so there's a lot of combining of data sets. And then, as you said, machine learning to be able to recognize purchases effectively. Amazing. And I'll confess, I'm a Joro user. I have the app. Uh, and what struck me is just how seamlessly this experience can occur. It's not that I'm entering in each of my purchases, but you actually connect through Plaid, which is a secure platform for connecting credit cards to other apps. And you're able just to see my transactions as they occur and be able to then make calculations about the carbon footprint. The user experience really smooth. I'm glad to hear that. And it really came out of my own experience. I, I tracked my own carbon footprint in an Excel spreadsheet for several years, and it was extremely tedious. Um, I did <laughs> discover many things I could do that would reduce my emissions. I ultimately reduced my emissions by, by 30% over a few years, but it was so much work. And I just want this to be easy. Well, great. So get a, we have a sense now of what you offer users. Uh, how do you make money? Right now, the app is free to use. Like I mentioned, we want tracking to always be free. Uh, the way we make money right now is if you purchase offsets. So if you decide that you want to reduce your emissions beyond what you can actually change in your life, but actually draw them down by investing in projects around the world that are reducing and removing carbon, then we do work for you. We evaluate and curate offset projects on a rolling basis, and we put together a portfolio of the best offsets on the market. 
that are usually only available to companies with large sustainability teams who can do that kind of research and buy in bulk. Uh, We basically aggregate demand from our community to do the same thing. So we have six projects that our community supports right now. Out of 30, we've evaluated deeply. The six projects are across forestry, soil, and some really long duration carbon removals that are doing really innovative stuff like Charm Industrial and Running Tide. And we take a 17% fee for managing that portfolio on an ongoing basis. Great. And maybe just to help people understand, what is an offset and how does offsetting work? Offsets are when you pay for carbon to be reduced or removed somewhere else in the world, usually measured in a ton of of carbon dioxide equivalent or greenhouse gases. And that can happen through things like forestry projects where you're restoring or planting trees that are capturing carbon as they grow. It can be through, we have a project with Running Tide that's actually sequestering carbon in kelp and seaweed and uh, returning that seaweed to the ocean floor so it's permanently stored at the bottom of the ocean. It can also happen through some technology-based ways, direct air capture projects, for instance. Offset projects vary dramatically in quality and in, in the amount of time that they last. And we think it's really important for people, if you're going to spend money on reducing or removing carbon somewhere in the world, it should actually be doing what you want it to do. And so we spend a lot of time and effort to make sure that no offset project is perfect and anyone who tells you otherwise is lying to you. But we spend a lot of time trying to make sure we find the best ones and then we put together a portfolio that maximizes impact. There's a fair amount of criticism of offsets, concerns about additionality, and I think that's what you're getting to with the idea of them being high quality. But um, there were concerns that offsets could take credit for carbon sequestration that would happen anyways without an offset being purchased. And also in the corporate space, there's concerns about companies putting off doing the hard work of reducing emissions by instead just buying offsets. How do you think about these concerns? And is it different because you're focusing on individuals rather than than companies? I think those are incredibly valid concerns. And those are things that worry me too. When I started on this journey with Joro, offsets weren't a part of the product. And it became one over time as I started to, to learn more and more about the space and understand not all offsets are bad, but maybe 80 to 90% of them are. I think it is quite similar for individuals as it is for companies. It is irresponsible to be offsetting with poor quality projects that are not actually reducing or removing carbon and using that as a license to pollute. That's not the goal of any of this work. So I think there's a few principles that I would keep in mind as a consumer or as a company if you're approaching offsetting. One is to make sure that you're combining offsetting with a measurement and reduction strategy. Offsetting alone without knowing your carbon emissions or without actively trying to reduce them in some way is not getting us to where we need to be uh, in the next 10 years. Also, it's super important as much as possible to use offsets as a price on carbon. We've seen that at the corporate level, that when offsets are used to set a price on carbon, they actually incentivize reduction. And we're starting to see evidence of that within our community as well. Our offset subscription is different because it's exactly proportional to your emissions that month. So when you offset, if you emit more, you pay more. If you emit less, you pay less. It's kind of like a a price on carbon for an individual. And we did find in 2021 that users who subscribed for a net zero membership with offsets actually reduced their emissions more than people who did not offset. 
they reduced their emissions 6% more than people who did it. Um, and so we're starting to see evidence that like responsible offsetting strategies are really powerful. They can allow you to express demand for carbon to be reduced or removed beyond what you can do yourself and have an impact beyond yourself. But if the incentives aren't designed correctly, then they can be harmful. Fantastic. So let's turn to some of those lifestyle choices that people can make. And we'll recognize that probably most people aren't as, oh, I say this in a nice way, wonderfully nerdy as you in, in building a spreadsheet and keeping track of it for years. But what are people doing or what can they do where they have the most leverage and the most impact for reducing their own carbon footprint? One of the things I always tell someone when they're like, what's the biggest thing I can do is that the biggest thing you can do is the thing you're actually going to do. And for everyone, that's different. So while there's a, there's a few big categories that drive the majority of emissions for our users, um, for some people, you know, their family lives super far away. Telling them to fly less is just not going to happen. Or for some folks, you know, meat is a big part of their diet, and they're never going to give it up. So telling them to go vegan is not helpful, even though that could be the biggest thing that they would do. I would start by thinking about sort of there's five categories of your carbon footprint as a person, and overall households contribute. 65% of global emissions. Um, so we kind of ladder up to the sort of systemic level of where emissions come from. There's your finances, there's your home energy use, there's your food, shopping, and travel. In finances, there's actually a lot of things you can do that people don't realize. You can switch your bank from a bank that funds fossil fuels. A lot of people don't realize our retail banks turn our savings around and use them to loan to, to fossil fuels. And JP Morgan Chase, if you have a Chase account, uh, they lend at a, a rate three times more to fossil fuel companies than, than other banks. Um, so even just switching your bank could be a really big action. There's some new data coming out on the actual carbon impact of that, um, but it's, it's pretty significant. Um, another area people don't think about is sort of your investments, um, your 401k. Those are things we, we had some guests on the on the event we had um, that are, are working on that. And then within travel, you know, flying less is really important, but people also, you can get creative. You can combine trips. That's the thing I do a lot is I do have to fly, but I can combine travel and stay for longer so that I can do fewer flights. Also flying direct cuts about 30% of emissions if you don't have a stop in the middle from takeoff and landing. Picking economy class and really efficient planes that are have a lot of people per flight are actually also really efficient ways to travel, sometimes more efficient than driving in an SUV. The discomfort we feel in a crowded plane is actually, well, it's an efficient <laughs> way to fly. There's, there's a silver lining. That COVID risk has a silver lining, exactly. But yeah, and within the home too, there's so many things. Um, if you're a homeowner, there's so many ways that creating efficiencies in your home can save you money um, and also save you carbon. If you're a renter, a lot of people don't realize you can switch your, util your utilities to green energy, usually through your utility provider or through a third-party service like uh, a community solar service like Solstice or Arcadia. Um, and so there's just so many amazing options. And we find that actually most of these actions save people money because you're using less energy. You know, so I either want to thank you for an advertisement for our previous episodes, or maybe you just saved people a lot of time of listening to them. But um, <laughs> definitely, if you're interested in some of those things that Sanchali just mentioned, there are episodes with uh, Wild Grid Solar, which is focused on uh, home energy, with Atmos Financial, focused on banking, and with Sphere, uh, focused on 401ks. Uh, so uh, we are definitely focused on those opportunities, too. And I'm really glad that you brought them up. 
Let's talk about food. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, uh, that your work in planning and meal planning for a cafeteria helped you see the opportunity for Joro. Tell us a bit about that experience and, and your overall journey as a founder, how you got started and where this came from. My journey started when I was a senior in college and I saw the documentary Food Inc. And I happened to be, as you said, the manager in my dining hall at the time. I also was in a sustainable economics class and I was an economics major. And it just really was the right movie at the right time. It made me think, wow, I spend all this time learning about supply and demand and markets and how they're made. And all this time, I didn't realize that I'm a market participant and I don't like my industrial food systems. Now that I've learned about where they come from and where my food comes from and the effect that they have on the planet, I don't want that. I don't want to use my money to support it. Um, so what could I do that would make a difference? And that's what got me interested in carbon tracking. So I started tracking the carbon footprint just from my meals. Um, and at first I was just tracking. I wasn't trying to make any changes. Um, and I started tracking and I found that I was actually eating meat, something like 12 meals a week. Even, you know, in the dining hall, I started just putting chicken on my salad or sausage at breakfast, like not really thinking about it very much, not being intentional. And then I started slowly cutting down from 12 to 6 and then from 6 to 4 and sort of seeing where is my point where I could do this for the rest of my life? What's sustainable for me? And I ended up cutting down to two meals a week for a sort of like a Friday night, Saturday night. And that was enough for me. I didn't really need more than that. It kind of felt like a sacrifice, but I really wasn't missing it. And I found that just that one action was having an impact, like taking half a car off the road that year. Um, wow. And I was like, wow, that's actually really meaningful. And what if everyone, maybe a lot, there's a lot of people in this dining hall, there's like 200 people who eat here who are like me. So I talked to the, the chefs and we decided it's probably fine if we switch one dish from meat to vegetarian every night. There's like four dishes and usually like three are meat and one's vegetarian. Why don't we just make it half and half to start with and see if anyone notices? And we did that and no one really cared. And then we said, what if we switch the red meat to just always chicken or fish? And no one really noticed. And so those changes, we were able to take hundreds of cars off the, the road that year. That was really what showed me sort of the power of aggregate demand or of community is another way of saying it, that when people take action together, it really matters. Fantastic. You were also a management consultant and you were focused on systems change, something that uh, in my work at IDEO, we do a lot as well. I'm curious from a systems change lens, which is really all about understanding the different interconnected relationships within a, a system. Why focus on individuals as your leverage? When point? I think about systems, I really liked your framing there, but it's about interconnected entities, like understanding the connections between and how things work. And what I realized through this and through my work as a consultant is that ultimately, companies and governments are responsible to stakeholders. They have companies have customers that are really critical to their businesses. They also have employees. Governments, especially democratic governments, care about their citizens. And when citizens demand things, that's when government changes. When consumers demand things, that's when companies change, and to some extent, employees as well. But it's very rare that you, it's almost unheard of, I think, in history that a company or a government would make a magnanimous change for no reason, unless it was demanded by their stakeholders. Um, and that's sort of my approach to thinking about individual behavior change is really about thinking about our systems as collections of individuals and realizing systems are made up of people making choices every day. And those choices come from somewhere. 
They come from demand right now in the way that our, our economy is set up. So to me, it's really inspiring to hear examples of when individual action has resulted in systems change as, as a way to know that that's possible. For instance, Greta Thunberg's protests against the Fridays for Future protests and the creation of sort of this flight shame, fly scum, ended up resulting in a decrease of flights in Germany and Sweden um, after those protests by almost 10%. It also, it last year, the French government uh, moved to ban short haul flights on routes where there were trains as a result of the sort of overwhelming sort of consumer demand for lower carbon modes of transport. And that's a huge systems change that is now being enacted as a result of really a few people protesting. And that's really the power, I think, of all of these things. It starts with a group of small people. And ultimately, that's where, where systems change come, comes from. I love that view. Systems change takes widespread behavior change, but can only start with a small number of people. So individuals have a lot of power when they add up as a community. What holds a lot of people back, of course, is that individual action can feel very small, especially compared to the enormity of the climate crisis. So one of the things I've become fascinated by is what I've been thinking of as a multiplier effect, opportunities that enable individuals to multiply their impact by influencing others or influencing systems. Here's an example. In a recent episode, I spoke with Alex Wright Gladstein, founder of Sphere, they're helping individuals and companies access clean 401ks. To me, what was most exciting is really that they're offering individuals an easy action of emailing their corporate benefits team, and that easy action could ultimately help move billions of dollars of investments because they're creating a new opportunity for investment for their entire company. So all of their fellow employees would have access to climate-positive 401ks. So... Coming back to Joro, are you thinking about multiplier effects? And if so, as you're aggregating demand and building a community, how are you helping people see that their impact will be multiplied by being part of the Joro community? Yeah, I think that's so important. And there's there's a couple ways we're thinking about that. The first way is by showing people that they're not alone. In the app, you can follow friends, you can follow people you know, and you'll have a little leaderboard of you versus versus others. Um, and you can also see with any action you take, other people who are currently taking that action right now. Um, so there's this element of, of knowing that you're part of something bigger than yourself. And we did find in our impact report last year that folks who followed at least one person on the app lowered their emissions by 20% more than people who did it. So it does also help just create that accountability and motivation to keep going. And we do a bunch of reporting back on sort of the aggregate impact of our community as well. But something we're working on now is helping to frame actions like the one you mentioned in a way that also allows you to multiply your impact. So that's such a great example. If you can green your 401k, and then you can take the step of actually asking your employer to offer green 401ks to the whole employee base. Or in the case of offsetting, you can offset and essentially be putting a price on carbon for yourself. You can also email your local congressperson about trying to set a price on carbon in your state. And so those are now actions that are not currently included in the app, but are things that we're working on to help folks take personal action and really make that connection to community. Fantastic. So some might be skeptical that consumers will take the time, effort, and expense to think about their carbon footprints. So who are the consumers that you're targeting and 
what made you confident that there would be demand for Joro and that you'd be able to engage these consumers? I think it's easy to be skeptical because to be honest, we have been hearing about the rise of the sustainable consumer for a while, um, you know, for like a decade at least. And and things are changing. I think we are seeing it happen in some areas very rapidly. Like I think the plant-based protein movement is a great example of where this whole industry has come up so quickly. And it's kind of evidence that there's a new type of consumer who's willing to try something completely different for health and environmental benefits. But what made me confident in launching Joro is that there is pretty clear evidence that consumer sentiment is changing at a rate it has never changed before. If you look at Yale's research on six Americas of climate change, um, it's shown that the climate alarmed population, which is sort of the most worried about climate change, worried about it on a daily or weekly basis, has grown from just 11% in 2012 to over 33% last year. That is a massive, massive growth in a very short period of time. We also see now millennial and Gen Z consumers are over 50% of the consumer base, and they value very different things. Global surveys of both millennials and Gen Z show that climate change is their number one concern, even higher than COVID in the last couple of years. And so that's just a radically different generation with different priorities. And they're not willing to accept the things that previous generations were willing to. They demand more uh, from the companies they're going to buy from. Yeah, that's great. So, you know, we'll include links uh, in the show notes to the Yale website that you mentioned. There's a lot of great research around communicating f- around climate to, to different audiences. Meanwhile, you're really focused on the U.S. Were there examples from abroad that also inspired you or made you confident that U.S. consumers could continue this trend to being more sustainably minded and more concerned about their their carbon footprint? Other countries have been, I think, farther ahead in some ways of the than the U.S. in both in terms of the general population's concern about climate and also in terms of regulation and company action. I think the EU is a great example where folks report being climate alarmed at a rate even 1.5 times higher than in the U.S. And actually, at the policy level, there's much more stringent policies requiring carbon disclosures from companies, which we're starting to see play out in the US as well, which is very encouraging. But I do think that there's examples from other countries who are further ahead in taking action. And and also, frankly, you know, living in other countries personally, I lived in India and Ethiopia before I started working on Joro. You see the effects of the climate crisis firsthand much more starkly. It's inescapable when you see flooding during the monsoons or you have to stay inside for days because it's been 110 degrees for a week. You know, or when I was in Ethiopia, there was one of the worst droughts in decades and people's entire livelihoods are wiped out. It's not just, you know, I have to stay, I have to close my windows because of the smoke, you know, that's bad. But a lot of us have the ability to cope with it based on where we live. But there's so many communities who don't have those protections. And when you see that every day, there's no question that the climate crisis is happening. So how's it going? Are you getting the level of interest and membership that you'd assumed you would? It's been really amazing and inspiring to see how what we're building is resonating with a really, really large group of people. Um, When I started on this journey, I felt pretty alone personally. Tracking my carbon footprint felt kind of weird, and I did not really tell many people about it for several years. But once we built this product and we started, you know, it's been pretty much all organic growth to date, word of mouth, people finding us either through our own content or content other people are writing about us. 
And we sort of built this incredible early community of people who are, are like, yeah, why doesn't this exist? And it, that's the most amazing thing when people say, as soon as I heard about Joro, I realized this is the most simple thing in the world and I should be doing it. That sort of feels like it's really hitting on something core is like, yeah, our manage our carbon like we manage our money. Like, why not? This year, one of the things that was really powerful was we were named one of the Time 100 most influential companies of the year. Wow. Which is crazy. Congratulations. We're 10 people. Yeah, <laughs> Thanks. that's great. Um, but there's like, there's like Netflix and you know, Airbnb <laughs> and these giant companies who are the most influential companies of the year. And the fact that our little startup that's doing this crazy wacky thing that doesn't really exist right now is in there. It means to me that carbon tracking is part of the future. Like carbon data is one of the most valuable metrics we have. Um, and it's currently just way underutilized. So I think of it similar to the mindfulness revolution where you know, a few years ago, no one was really using a meditation or mindfulness app and no one was really talking about it. People who meditated were crunchy hippies. One of the founders of Headspace, Rich Pearson, is one of our investors. And hearing their stories uh, really has helped us think about sort of where we are in culture in this cultural moment and sort of what could be coming in the future. A couple of years from now, it'll just be normal for everyone to know their carbon emissions and to be managing them intentionally uh, towards some sort of like sort of future wealth rather than just racking up carbon debt without knowing about it. That'll just be normal for, for people to have a climate practice, just like you have a mindfulness practice. And that's really the, the cultural sort of change that we see and we feel like we're in, in the position to help create. Yeah, what you're describing is, and this is really interesting, is it's not just about helping people manage their carbon footprint, but it's contributing to a cultural change, as you said, a paradigm shift, a change in consciousness. And I'm curious, given that you have to focus on user growth and just the metrics of making your business work, how are you able to also track or work towards or partner to work towards some of those loftier goals of, of a new way of thinking? I think you're right. I mean, ultimately, what using Joro is about is about finding balance. It's about finding balance in your life with the world that we live in and using our consumption intentionally to try to create the world that we all want to live in together going forward. We track, I mean, a lot of the normal metrics that an app or a company like us would track with user growth and revenue, like you said. We also track a lot of impact metrics. We look at what percentage of our users are actually engaged with reducing carbon right now. Uh, we look at how much carbon per person is being reduced or removed. We found last year that our average user who is tracking their emissions for the course of the year lowered their footprint by about 21%. Wow. About half of that was through behavior change. About half of it was through offsets. And that's really powerful. That's really, really incredible. And I think some of the other stuff that you're talking about really won't be able to be measured in metrics, but will only be able to be seen in culture and sort of happens through brand and through popular culture of sort of is carbon awareness, climate awareness, sort of this understanding of our mutual coexistence with nature becoming a bigger part of what's accepted in, in the mainstream and what's sort of taken as the norm. I'm curious from what you're tracking, and you mentioned before that your belief is, is that the most impactful change someone can make is the one that they're going to actually do. What are the changes that Joral users are making? Imagine that you're tracking a lot of the choices and the decisions that they make. What is it that's really standing out as the easiest or the most common things that people are doing? And what does it point to as the action areas where we actually need to invest more to help people change? 
Some of the areas where people have made the biggest carbon reductions in the last year or so have been specifically in their home energy use and in their travel. In travel, that happens in different ways. Some people are able to change how much gasoline they're using by making choices to stay work from home instead of going back to the office. Some people are making changes in how much they fly. We've, we've heard a lot of reporting of combining trips um, or taking fewer flights, doing road trips, a lot more willingness to do road trips now. That might be a good thing, sort of a blasting thing from COVID. Or excited to get back on trains again because it's just so new and, and uh, something we haven't been able to do in a while. Also, a lot of folks offsetting flights uh, when you have meaningful offsets that, and you do have to fly. That's a great way to do it. Um, and then in home energy use, people doing things like turning down the thermostat, you know, using less electricity at home, actually heating and cooling. People don't realize it's like 50% of your energy use in the home. It's one of the biggest areas where you can save energy and save money, as well as unplugging devices. 23% of energy use in our home comes from idle devices across the U.S. Um, so getting smart strips, putting them on timers so that they're not always using energy when you're away from home. Or, you know, using cold wash and air dry, also another big source of energy use. Or then also just straight up switching their utilities to clean energy like we were talking about through their utility provider or a third party. Um, those were some of the most impactful actions people took. But we also got a lot of interest in some of our articles and guides on how to do things that maybe might take longer for people to decide to do. But things like how to build a sustainable wardrobe was one of our most popular articles we wrote. So like thinking about over time, how do you move from a fast fashion wardrobe to a more like longer lasting and thrifted wardrobe or people thinking about how to green their banks. That was a big one that it takes time and effort, but there's a lot of interest. Working on climate and thinking about it all the time, it can get really sad and scary sometimes. And I do think that those feelings of like isolation and guilt are very real. And what brings me joy and hope is when I see people taking action and see how deeply so many people care about this. Um, you know, there's thousands of people on Joro who are taking action together, actually tens of thousands of people. And that's amazing to see. Talking to other folks about what they've done, it gives me inspiration and it gives me hope and also some accountability for things that I'm, I'm trying to do. So climate crisis isn't any of our faults. None of us caused it, but that doesn't mean we're powerless either. We don't have to give that up entirely. So I hope that people who listen to this will feel like, you know, kind of give yourself some grace. That's that's my hope is that people develop a carbon intuition and they know which things to stress about, which ones not to. I don't really worry if I forget to bring my cup to the to the coffee shop anymore because it's in the grand scheme of things, that choice doesn't matter that much relative to what I'm putting in my cup or relative to what I eat for lunch or relative to how I chose to get to work that day. You know, those are the really the big choices I should be focusing on. And so I do think it gives you a little bit of like relief that you don't have to worry about everything. Sanchali, thank you so much for all of your insights uh, and sharing your story with us. I always ask this question to end with. This podcast, Invested in Climate, aims to help listeners do more to address climate change really through five categories of action, work, investments, learning, lifestyle, and activism. We've talked a lot about the power of lifestyle decisions also have touched on political activism and investments. And so I'm curious, is there anything from those other categories of work and learning that you think is really impactful and something people should consider doing? 
I love that framing. I think all of us, when we think about like sort of centering and what power we have to address the climate crisis, we can think about the resources within our control. Like our lifestyle is one form of resources within our control. Our labor, our cal- like capital labor um, is another one. And where we choose to work is super important. We participate in a very meaningful way, 40 hours a week, some people even more in the economy that way. And so thinking about, is there a way for me to move my career more into like helping create a low carbon future, a sustainable and just future? Does that mean changing jobs? Does that mean using the role that I'm in at my current company or organization to create change at this organization to be more climate positive? I think that's a really, really powerful and important question. How we spend our time is such an important resource we have. And learning is just the, I feel like the underpinning for all of this. Learning and awareness is always the first step and talking about it with others. I think learning and sharing that learning with people we know, our communities is like another way that we have influence through resources. And so I think that's a really important area to think about and a place to draw inspiration from too. We at the company, we started reading Braiding Sweetgrass as like an onboarding book for before anyone joins. Such a good book. And there's just, there's so much to learn. The world is so rich. That's the kind of world we're trying to protect. Love it. Sanchali, thank you so much for all of your time and for sharing your story with us today. I will be uh, checking my Joro app for my own carbon footprint and wishing you luck and hope to stay connected. Thanks so much, Jason. This was really fun. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Invested in Climate. Please remember to rate us on Apple, Spotify, or Google. Find show notes, sign up for updates, get in touch, and visualize your climate action at investedinclimate.com. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial, accounting, or legal advice. Thanks again.